the prologue to the totality of scripture. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Did you know that the word for formless and empty in Hebrew also has this idea of being chaos and confusion? So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, also implying the earth was full of chaos and confusion. Chaos and confusion, and yet there's a God who speaks and brings life and creation into being, and he comes into this disordered chaos, and he creates order. He creates structure. By his power, he brings things to beauty and goodness. And as he does that, he creates a garden. And in this garden, it is peaceful. It is beautiful. It's this Hebrew idea of shalom, which we translate as peace, but it captures so much more than just the absence of chaos or confusion. It's actually flourishing life. And so in this garden, there is flourishing life, and man is placed in this garden to cultivate it, to take dominion of it, to be the image of God and subdue the earth. And yet we rebel. We rebelled, we sinned, and in that sinning, defying God and his commands, we have fallen, and so there's this separation. The consequence is ultimately death, that we will be separated from God, and yet God in grace comes looking for man who's hiding in shame, and he's bringing him back, and he says, hey, there's hope to come. Salvation will come, but there's this curse that is now present, and part of that curse is that this man is going to work, and in his work, which was once good, it will now feel like futility that it's going to be like this meaningless, just endless cycle of I strive and I strive and I strive and the ground is fighting back. Now there's thorns and thistles, there's things that hurt and it's by the sweat of my brow that this is just this ongoing laborious task that's so difficult. Can you relate? I mean, it's spring. You come to this point, like, thank God for the rain. (laughs) It's been so long since we've had rain and yet the things I don't want to grow in my yard are still growing. Is Is that your case? We, like, I don't know if someone did this to me. Like, this is how my mind works because I'm insecure like that. But like, so, somehow we had hundreds of stinging nettles in our backyard. I don't remember that ever happening at our house in years we've lived there. But we had so many stinging nettles, like thorns and thistles. Like, these are worth the most. Like, they just, they hurt. It's just terrible. And so we're at spring cleaning time going through. Like, there's trimming to be done. There's fertilizer to put down. There's all this stuff to do. And as I'm doing all this stuff, it's on top of just all the other demands of life. You know what I'm talking about. They're just, the list never ends. It's just one of those scrolling things. And yet, there comes a point in, in all of my endeavors of trying to have a somewhat presentable property, I don't know, <laughs> pressure washing. <sighs> you feel me? You feel me? <laughs> pressure washing. I don't know. If, if you have a job at all like mine to where like, sometimes you just don't see the results a lot, like, what did I do today? Like, what do I have to show for what I did today? I I know that there's fruit to be born of this, but sometimes it's just nice when you have a task like pressure washing, like, that's disgusting. It's no longer disgusting. It's so nice. It's therapeutic. And so you're just going along, I'm doing the driveway and just going to the sidewalk, and it's just so nice. You can see your progress. You know that you're making a real difference in the world, even if it's just my world. From pressure washing, I'm just lost in thought. You know, the, like, the humming, it's melodic. It's just, and that vibration, you're just like, I'm in the zone. Like, deep thoughts, if I can have such a thing, and just like, I'm lost in this moment. It's so nice. It's like, in the midst of the curse of the fall and how the ground fights back, I have found peace to just be with my pressure washer and this dirty ground. 
I'm just, I'm here, and I'm in the zone, and all of a sudden, I look up, and boom, there's a Mandalorian on a scooter flying at me. I'm like, what is this? Like, the most violent change of pace ever. And it's terrifying. But here's the thing. In that moment, I'm not expecting that. And how we encounter something is largely determined by what we're looking for. Do you know that? How you encounter something is largely determined by what you are actually looking for. And so I want this morning for you to think, it's Easter, and you think of the claims of Easter, that Jesus is the Son of God, God the Son, who came and took on human flesh, lived a sinless life. And he died, and he came back to life. This is, this is the claim of resurrection from the dead. When you think of all the claims, all of what you think and expect of Easter, as you expect that, that is going to shape how you actually encounter Jesus. And so as we come to Jesus, we should be thinking, what is my expectation in meeting him? And will he defy that, actually? He may want to change your view of who he is today. I think he actually does. From the most spiritually mature person in this room to the infant or even to the atheist who would defiantly say God is not even real. Jesus wants to change the way that you view him today. So as we go through this, will you turn with me to John chapter 20? As we're getting close to concluding our series through the gospel of John, John chapter 20, we'll start with the first verse. Because up to this point, we've gone through this gospel and we've seen Jesus has tabernacled. He's taken on flesh. The word became flesh. He's dwelling among men. He's set up shop with us. And he goes about displaying his glory, doing miraculous things, turning water into wine at an embarrassing, uh, I almost called it a funeral, it's a wedding, that's a very different thing. But at a wedding, he's salvaging the party by creating all this wine, he's healing people who have no ability to walk, no ability to see, all these different things he's doing, he's showing them, I have the power to do what I want, to bring about life, and he brings it to this culmination where his friend Lazarus has died and he waits days so that he can show them, this is my power. He brings someone from death to life and he's saying all the while, this is gonna happen with me. And yet they're just not getting it. And so we can read this story and we've got kind of this other party kind of like outside view to look in and we like, we've heard all, we know how this ends and all this stuff. And it's easy to kind of see these people and be like, they're so silly. How do they not get it? How do they not get it? but they come up to this point where Jesus is in a room and he's having the Passover meal and he's instituting the Lord's Supper and he's saying things like, hey, this bread, breaking it, this is my body, broken for you. And this cup of blessing, this cup of wine, he says, you know, this, I can imagine him, I don't know that he did this, but I can imagine him spilling it out and he says, this cup, this cup of blessing you've called it for generations, this is the cup of the new covenant of my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And it's like, what? Like all these things about Passover and we're thinking historically and everything. And Jesus is redefining that for them. And then later that night, Judas, a friend of his, for 30 pieces of silver betrays him, comes up, gives him a kiss as the guards there who are heavily armed come and they arrest Jesus. They make a mockery of him. They put him on these just trumped up charges, these trials that amount to nothing. And the crowds are screaming, crucify him. The same crowds that just days prior on Palm Sunday are saying, Hosanna! They're shouting in victory. The king has come into the city and now they're screaming, crucify him. Kill that man. Kill him. 
We want nothing else. Kill him. And the disciples who said, no, 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 we're with you to the end. They all run and they're hiding. And at best, a couple of them are in the shadows trying to keep a little bit of distance but to see what's happening. And Jesus is nailed to a cross ultimately where he breathes his last saying, it is finished. And he dies. And there's darkness during the middle of the day for three hours. The earth shakes The temple veil that's supposed to separate you from the Holy of Holies where God's manifest presence dwells is torn in two. And Jesus is dead. A couple guys take his body and there's a tomb nearby in a garden and they take his lifeless body, wrap it up in some linen cloths and throw it in there because it's the day of preparation. Tomorrow is the Sabbath and we're not to do any work. And so now there's Saturday, a day of silence where no one is to do work. And here comes Sunday morning as the sun is about to rise. And you can imagine kind of that eerie pre-sunrise moment where it's chilly, everything's damp, and your friend died. This wasn't just your friend. Like, I watched him raise somebody from the dead. I was there when he rubbed his spit and mud in that guy's eyes, and that guy opened his eyes after he washed in the pool of Siloam, and he could see Like, I've seen this man do amazing things, and they killed him. He's actually dead. I saw the color come out of his body. He's dead. Here we come to chapter 20. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. It's now Sunday. They've waited for the Sabbath to end, and now Mary Magdalene is coming. What do we know of Mary? Um, There's a lot of fiction that creates her um, just into some weird stories that are not true. Um, But what we know of Mary from Scripture is that she's a follower of Jesus, a very devout follower of Jesus, um, that she was there at some pivotal moments. She was there at the crucifixion. She was there, now here in this moment, at the tomb. This this is somebody that we should know about. This Mary Magdalene, um, we're introduced to her at one point by saying that she had seven demons in her that Jesus cast out. And if you know anything about demonic oppression or possession or any of those kinds of things, this is not a good thing. This woman was tormented. Seven demons that Jesus cast out. And so she would naturally have such a deep love and appreciation, this overwhelming gratitude for what Jesus has done in freeing her. And here she is, her devotion on display, that as soon as the the Sabbath has ended, sunrise is coming, and she's here at the tomb. She wants to anoint the body with spices, just in respect and as a way for her to grieve the loss of this one that she's so confused about. I saw the things he did, and now he's gone. He's dead. How can this be? So it continues. She saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she went running to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. So knowing a bit about her, imagine her emotions. As she comes up, she's got spices in hand. She's ready to honor him in some way, to grieve the loss of this man that's just so full of wonder. And as she gets there, the stone is moved away. And she realized that was a stone that had a seal set on it and a Roman guard was here. And now it's open, and she knows something is wrong. Something has gone wrong. And now, quick tidbit for those of you um, who who love to dive a little bit deeper into the Gospels and Scripture and so forth, or maybe you've heard some amateur on TikTok trying to convince you that this contradicts itself and all this stuff. Um, Did you notice what she said when she saw John and Peter? She said, we don't know where they've taken them. 
Because if you read the other gospels, you may see that it's numerous women. And suddenly you read John's gospel and you're like, well, it's just Mary. And yet here's a little clue. Just like John does throughout his gospel, that often he'll focus in on one individual to tell the story of a whole. And so in the same way, Mary now is representative of a group of women, and yet you enter into the emotional life of Mary, considering her story, and you imagine her taking off running, a woman running as the sun is still coming up, and it's cold, and all of what's going on, and she takes off running, and she finds Jesus' closest friends, John and Peter. She says, we don't know where they've taken him. Something has gone wrong. So they come back. Now look at verse 3. At that, Peter and the other disciple went out, heading for the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and got to the tomb first. Stooping down, he saw the linen cloth lying there, but he did not go in. Then following him, Simon Peter also came. He entered the tomb and saw the linen cloth lying there. The wrapping that had been on his head was not lying with the linen cloth, but was folded in a separate place by itself. The other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, then also went in, saw, and believed. For they did not yet understand the scripture. He must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to the place where they were staying. Who is this? Mary has run to find Peter. We know Peter. Peter's the guy who's kind of like just the, the natural leader in the group. He's the first to speak up often. Um, he's the one who, looking over this evil place, Jesus says, like, who do people say that I am? I'm like, well, some say this, some say that. And he's like, but who do you say that I am? And Peter's the one who says, you're the Messiah. You're the Christ. You're the anointed one. You're the one who's come for the salvation of the world. And Jesus is like, blessed are you. Blessed are you. Heaven revealed that to you. So this guy is elevated. He's esteemed. He's, he's a guy who's a leader. And yet he's the same guy that Jesus tells him at that same fateful dinner. Together he says, you know what, actually, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. And Peter's like, absolutely not, absolutely not. They go into this garden. The, the guards come and they're coming to arrest Jesus. And what does Peter do? Peter takes out a sword and cuts off the ear of the high servant's uh, assistant, or the high priest's servant. Malchus loses an ear and Jesus does the whole like uh, Mr. Potato Head thing, sticks it back on his head and is like, don't do that. <laughs> but you see Peter's passion. Like, I'm willing to fight all these guys. I'm not going to deny you. They take Jesus, and next thing we see with Peter is he's there off in the shadows and everything, and someone's like, wait, 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 you're a follower, you're a friend of his, right? No, 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 no. And it happens three times, including him saying some beep words. I don't know him. And he locks eyes with Jesus, the rooster crows, and he realizes what he has done. He imagined how heartbroken he is as one of Jesus' closest friends, to have betrayed Jesus, to have abandoned Jesus, to deny Jesus like that. And like, I went from being the one who confessed him first, like, I was doing so good. Who are you, Peter? And Peter hears that the tomb has been emptied, and he runs, he's running, and there's this other one, the other disciple. This is John's typical fashion where he doesn't call himself by name. He's known as the beloved disciple, the disciple whom Jesus loved, the other disciple. This is how he refers to himself. And yet, Peter and John, very good buddies, they take off running, and this is how we know that this is historical. This is how we know that a real man wrote this, because one man, John, said, you know what, as I record this, watch this, Peter was lacking. I outran him. Had to wait for him. I, I can just imagine John, if Peter was still alive at the point when John wrote this, which was probably later in his life, but I can just imagine him like, I can't wait till Peter reads this part. <laughs> but he includes this weird detail that we really don't know exactly why other than to say, it's real. 
This is history, to include these kinds of details. The tomb is empty. They get there, they ultimately go inside, they see there's nothing there but discarded linens. The things that once wrapped the dead body of Jesus are left. And so you have to wonder, was this a grave robbery? What grave robber is going to come in, take anything of value, and decide, I'm going to take the body? And you know what? This body that's just been tortured, like it's been beaten beyond recognition, like pierced the side, blood and water flow from the heart, like cat of nine tails, ripped all the flesh off of his back, crown of thorns sunk into his skull, nails driven through his hands and feet. That body, I'm going to take it out of the garments so that I can let it touch me and I'm going to run off with it. No, that doesn't make sense. Or maybe this is some conspirator trying to say, we're going to mess with these people. We're going to create chaos and confusion for them. But again, why leave the linens and just take the body? They know that something odd has happened here and John saw and he believed. Can you see an empty tomb today? And can you believe? Can you believe what this means for us? As we go to verse 11. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she was crying, she stooped to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting where Jesus' body had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you crying? Because they've taken away my Lord, she told them, and I don't know where they've put him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know it was Jesus. Woman, Jesus said to her, Why are you crying? Who is it that you're seeking? So apparently Mary is pretty fast too. She ran to them, they ran to the tomb, and now she has run back to the tomb. She's there with them. They have wandered off. John believing, Peter probably scratching his head. What is this? What's going on? Mary is there in her despair, still believing that Jesus has died and someone has stolen his body. And as she's crying, she decides, I'm going to look in there myself. And she stoops down and she looks in there. And now there are two angels inside. Two angels are inside. And these angels ask her, woman, why are you crying? She's distraught, believing that he's dead, that his body has been taken. And I have to wonder if these angels asked in real confusion. Because they know what has happened. Like, woman, why are you crying? Like, they know he's alive. She does not know he's alive. She's distraught. They have a point. The angels have a point in questioning her on this because if Jesus is alive, we have no reason to despair. If Jesus is dead, we have every reason to despair. And as Paul said, we should be pitied above all. But Jesus is alive. And so they're questioning her. They're trying to draw out of her. Be honest about this. What does this mean? If Jesus is not alive, we are ridiculous for being here on a Sunday morning. You know that? What is this religious charade if Jesus is not alive? But if he is alive, then what could stand against us? Then we have everything we need. Jesus is alive. So Mary turns back from looking inside and seeing these angels. And I've got to imagine she's still really, really confused. But she turns around and she sees Jesus. But she doesn't realize who it is. She doesn't realize that it's Jesus. Maybe because it's still not fully bright outside. Maybe because she's crying. There's tears in her eyes. I don't know why. But she doesn't realize that it's Jesus who's now talking to her and he asks her the same question. Woman, why are you crying? And he says, who are you seeking? What does she say? Look at the next part. Supposing he was the gardener, she replied, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. Turning around, she said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. 
So here's the thing. Recall that in verse 15, when Jesus first asks her a question, what does he call her? Woman. He says, woman, why are you crying? Do you remember another time in the book of John when Jesus called someone who would have been pretty close to him, woman, his mom, at that wedding in Cana? When mom comes up, and instead of addressing mom as mom, he says, woman, what does that have to do with me and you? And we talked about how what he was trying to do was distinguish himself. By calling her woman, he's elevating her. He's giving her the dignity of you were created in the image of God. And he's saying, humanity. I have entered into humanity, and yet I am distinct in this profound way. And Jesus, in the same way, resurrected. He says to a close friend, Mary, he says, woman, why are you crying? Humanity, why are you crying? Why do you not have hope? And she says, I don't know where they've taken my Lord. And what does he do? He says, Mary. And at the mention of her personal name, her eyes are open as she realizes it's Jesus. This is Jesus. This is Jesus who is talking to us. And so this is the God-man who is fully divine and yet fully human. This is the God who created the cosmos. This is the God who is transcendent over everything. He is not contingent on anything. He needs us not. He doesn't need you. And yet, having created you and you rebelling against him, he comes to you and he says your personal name. A God that intimate with us. What a glorious God that he would call us by name and our eyes would be opened and realize he loves me? You came back for me. What is this God? What a beautiful God, a personal God using our name. And Jesus, as she realizes who he is, you can imagine again the emotional roller coaster. She realizes Jesus is alive. He's standing here with me. This is what he says in verse 17. Don't cling to me, Jesus told her, since I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and tell them that I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them what he had said to her. Jesus, standing there as she's emotionally overwhelmed, and now her deep, deep sorrow is turned to joy and hope and all of the beautiful things that would come with realizing Jesus is alive and Jesus says to her, don't cling to me. That's weird. That's a weird thing to say, Jesus. And it's debated a lot. I don't honestly know for sure, but here's the thing. As an introvert, like, he was betrayed. He was put on trial. He was beaten. He was crucified. Like, he was murdered. And then he rose back from the dead. Yeah, give the man some space. (laughs) This makes sense. But I don't think that's what it is. He said, don't cling to me. And that's different than saying, don't touch me. And so, again, this is debated, but I think, I think what he is saying there is this is a new paradigm for how my followers will relate to me. That he knows he's about to ascend back to the Father and he's saying, don't hold on to me by faith and my physical form, my proximity to you. You're going to relate to me by faith. And then you hear the words of Jesus prior to this when he's saying, like, blessed are those who believe without seeing. There's something new that is coming here. Jesus, appearing to Mary. Ladies, don't miss the significance of this. The world is very different now. And in many ways, it's very confused. But in many ways, we've actually made great progress because of moments like this with Jesus and a woman. But for Jesus to show up first to a woman is incredible. It's so empowering. It's so dignifying of females. 
Did you know, um, in the first century Palestinian context of this, this is what a Jewish historian known as Josephus recorded. This is a law from the days of Jesus. It says, let not the testimony of women be admitted on account of the levity and boldness of their sex. That women were flighty. Couldn't trust them. So they had no legal standing. You didn't accept the legal testimony of a woman. So if a woman came and was claiming something, nothing. We need, we need a man to do this. And what does Jesus do? The very first person who gets to see him resurrected, a woman. And he tells her, now you go preach Easter. Go tell them that I'm alive. And this is so beautiful. So anyone trying to create a myth, if this is falsified, if this is just made up, someone trying to create a myth, they're like, yeah, that Jesus who was killed, he came back to life. They would not, in that context, they would absolutely not say the first person he showed up to, a woman. Because her testimony would have no credibility. And so we can look at that and say, what a beautiful testament to the historicity of this. That it is true. They would not have recorded it like this unless it was actually true that a woman was the first one that Jesus showed up to. That's amazing to me. So look at verse 19. She goes, she says, I've seen the Lord. Verse 19, when it was evening of the first day of the week, the disciples were gathered together with the doors locked because they feared the Jews. Makes sense. Jesus was brutally murdered. And they were followers. And they're scared. As they're in a room, locked the doors, they feared the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Having said this, he showed them his hands and his side, so the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Now, locked in a room, scared, not knowing what's going to happen. I apologize to my family, but they know that I really enjoy jump-scaring people. It's just a thing. Sometimes I will wait an absurd amount of time for the right moment when someone walks into the room and I can just, yeah, daddy's here. Like, it's just a fun thing for me. I love it. And I have to read this and be like, Jesus is masterful, masterful. Like, I'm usually alone waiting for them to wander in the room the disciples are in a locked room and Jesus still is just like, surprise, I'm here. <laughs> like they're terrified. <laughs> and Jesus is like, hey, hey, see these holes? See the scar on my side? I'm real. I'm here with you. The first thing he says is peace be with you. Showing us proof. His hands, his side, the scars. He's showing them proof so you could have peace. This is what the Christian apologist Neil Shinvey says. He says, the resurrection was God's confirmation that Jesus was who he claimed to be. And it is God's assurance to Christians that they have been forgiven. This is how we know the sacrifice was enough. That we have truly been forgiven. We are justified. We are declared righteous. We have a right standing with God because of Jesus' death. His resurrection is how we know that it is true. As Jesus stands there, resurrected, so we could know that we have peace, that we have been forgiven. This is at the center of what Jesus says, and peace be with you, because peace is not going to be alongside sin. The problem is our sin, that we all, every one of us, we have all turned aside, we have all run astray, we have all fallen short of the glory of God, we don't measure up. We don't even meet the standards that we impose on others. We don't measure up. You cannot be good enough. We sin. We defy God. And that is a problem because he is holy and there's a consequence for sin. And so if we want peace, you have to know the problem is sin. And the consequence of sin is death. 
It is physical death that you will one day die, but it is also this spiritual death that we have been separated from life who is God himself. And so the problem is sin. The consequence of sin is death. The result of our sin is death. And so how can we have peace? As Jesus comes and says, peace be with you. How can we have peace? How can that be? How do you relate to or acquire peace? Like you, for real. How do you relate to or acquire peace? Maybe you've seen Iron Man. You remember that movie? Tony Stark, this multi-billionaire. How does he make his fortunes? Weapons development. He's a weapons manufacturer. And there comes a point where he's riding in this Humvee with another soldier, and the soldier's like, he's a celebrity. He's like, can I take a photo with you? And he's like, oh, yeah, sure. And they go to take the photo, and the soldier holds up a peace sign. And Tony Stark says, yeah, peace. I love peace. I'd be out of a job with peace. Is that how you relate to sin? Is that how you think that you have a chance at peace? You've actually fallen in love with the things that are destroying you, that are taking life from you and those that you love? Have you made peace with sin? That's not a real peace. You need real peace. You need someone or something to address the consequence of your sin to have real peace. Or maybe it's Teddy Roosevelt's approach. President Teddy Roosevelt, you know, he famously said this was his foreign policy. Speak softly, carry a big stick. It may be for you. You think that you will somehow find peace, that you will deal with the calamity that you've brought on yourself by just pulling up your bootstraps, just white-knuckling it. Somehow, I'm going to be enough. If I just try a little harder, I can do this. I can make things right. And you watch your life as things just continue to spiral more and more and more. And even your righteousness, Scripture says, it's like filthy rags in the sight of God. You cannot muster up enough might. You will never be good enough to earn your way into heaven. It is not possible for you. But there's another way. There's one true way that you can find peace. And it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the fact that Jesus has become our peace, that he took all of our sin on himself. He is the sinless son of God who came and lived a sinless life. And then he died the death that you and I deserve. He died on a cross and he said it is finished. What's finished? His atoning work that he has absorbed the full wrath that was due on us, that he has given us his righteousness. And he's calling you, sinner, to turn from your sin, to confess that you are a sinner in desperate need of the Lord and Savior. His name is Jesus. So you confess him as Lord. You believe in your heart. He died, but he rose again. And this is my peace, that I can be made right with God by God himself so that I would be with God forevermore so that I could be with him. He has done it. He is the solution. He is our peace. And peace is not just about the absence of chaos or death. Remember, it's flourishing life. It's flourishing life. And so we think back to the prologue of John's gospel. It says, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him. And apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. And you hear those words in the beginning. And it harkens back to the prologue of all of Scripture, where we started. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And this is the same God. The same God from the beginning is here now, offering us peace. That the God who would take chaos and create beauty and ordered creation, and he would say, here's a garden at the center of it for man to live and flourish. And do you remember 
what Mary thought she saw. As she turned from that empty tomb and saw Jesus, but not realizing it was Jesus, who did she think it was? A gardener. She wasn't wrong because Jesus is the gardener. He's the OG. He's the original gardener. You're welcome. Jesus is the gardener that from the beginning brought about the flourishing of life and then we messed it up and he stepped back into it and said, I'm going to fix it. I'm going to bring life everlasting for you because I want you here with me. He is the gardener. Gardeners pursue flourishing life and they do this through the cultivation of life, promoting life, and then sometimes they do that through redemptive means of death like Pastor Tim talked about last week. You can take dying things and help to give life to other things and we see proof of a gardener's ability by looking at his garden and we see Jesus, the ultimate gardener who takes death and makes it the ultimate redemption that he would die for us in our place and that he would be raised back to life to say, watch this power. I have the power to create life and his life is our life bound up in his this work extending to us. And if you don't believe it, look back at the start of the chapter. John wanted you to see this. On the first day of the week, harkens back to the creation week. And you go back to day six when man is created and you look back, well, that's Friday. That's when Jesus died for man. And then you have Saturday, this day of Sabbath of rest where nothing seems to be happening. And then Sunday, a new week starts as this new creation just bursts from death to life. And Jesus says, come on, guys, come with me. I've brought life, so peace be to you. God gives us life to live with him. He gives us life to live with him. Do you know that you were loved like that, beloved? Do you know that you were loved like that? That there's a God who would say, I'm not just going to give you a clean slate. That's not enough. I'm going to give you my righteousness. I'm going to give you a right standing with me because I want you to be with me that God loves you like that, that he would go through death and he would raise back to life so he can raise you back to life. This is our hope. This is what we believe, that we have a God who is alive. He's the gardener and he's still at work and he's gonna finish what he started. He's gonna raise us back up. We're gonna be with him forever, that we get to be with God. It's the most beautiful, glorious news that we could ever imagine. Like, could you imagine anything more glorious than this? You can't. There's a God who loves you like that and he calls you by name. So when you don't know and you might look around and say, there must be a God, he steps in and he says, Kevin, I love you. There's a God who calls you by name. Do you know him? This is not just a story to give us hope. This is not even to give us faith in a historic event. This is a God saying, you're mine. You're mine. I'm giving you life. Jesus is alive He's alive right now and he's calling you. So will you hear him? Will you believe this good news today? Will you put your trust in him, the gardener who's the king of kings? He's the Lord of lords. He's the conqueror of sin and death. He said it's finished. He's calling you by name. He loves you. This is Yahweh, God with us. I am that I am. He is the same yesterday, today, forevermore. The Alpha, the Omega. This is God. His name is Jesus. He loves you. Stand up. Come on. Sing with me. This is the God who's alive. So love him. He took all of our shame. He left it in the grave. You're forgiven. You are forgiven. So we 
raise your voice to work is forever done. It's only by the blood of Jesus. So raise your voice. Let's worship the gardener. He's alive.